Welcome to the Longitude Research Podcast, Thought Leadership Insights, where senior figures from the firm, together with leading marketing executives, explore key trends shaping the evolution of thought leadership and marketing. I am your host, Fregel Byrne. I'm very pleased today to welcome Parker Ward to the Longitude Thought Leadership Insights podcast. Parker is Global Head of Digital and Content at Capgemini, where he looks after digital marketing, platform and content strategy for the group. Prior to that, Parker was Global Head of Content, working across the group to drive and improve best practices in content marketing, creative and operations. Parker is here today to share his thoughts on the role of thought leadership at Capgemini, how he sees thought leadership evolving, and how Parker and his team design and share thought leadership across various marketing and digital platforms to engage existing and prospective clients. Welcome to the Longitude Thought Leadership Insights podcast, Parker. Thank you. Great to be with you. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your role at Capgemini, talking to you and getting some insights on how you approach thought leadership, and maybe also some reflections on the changing environment for thought leadership today and some advice and tips about how to develop and promote a good campaign. Sounds like a plan. Tell me a little bit about your role, Parker. My current title is Global Head of Digital and Content, which is a pretty fancy way of saying I manage the teams that run all of our websites and social media channels, as well as the kind of content strategy piece for marketing, figuring out what kind of content we should produce, how we get it made, and then how do we publish it in the right way. Right. Thought leadership has morphed, grown into a proliferation to content marketing and there's a proliferation of different media and different styles of content. But it seems to be that the professional services consultancy companies, once upon a time, were really the leaders in this field. It emerges from their approach to communicate with their clients and so forth. So this is clearly something that's at the heart of what you do. Thought leadership's a priority for us at the group. It's something that I feel is a bit of an anachronism left over from those early days of business consulting and that there is the traditional big POV white paper, usually in a locked PDF format. I still see that not only in my company, but across the industry. It's a huge, huge piece of what everybody's doing. Now we're moving into, I think, an area where we're trying to unlock that process maybe break it up into smaller pieces and then still trying to approach our clients and partners and stakeholders and even our sales force with this great stuff that helps us with all of those relationships. Once upon a time, these would have been a report, a written report that was published and still is in some cases uniquely. The underlying content, it can be used in so many different ways and the reports, to the extent they still are in PDF, Nonetheless, they're often part of an underlying program, and these insights are parceled and delivered in different media in different formats. Yeah, that's exactly right. And especially in a service business like this, we're all just trying to convince everybody that we're professionally smarter than the other guy. Yes. The thought leadership is absolutely crucial to creating that separation in the marketplace, maybe deepening a relationship that you have with someone, maybe just making somebody sit up and think a little bit. And when everybody is trying to do that same thing, there's actually a real dearth of actual insight. So we have to actually look at the delivery mechanism by which we're delivering that insight. And, you know, as the executive class is getting older and the new generation is coming in and that old school printed out, read it on the train home PDF format, it's not going to cut it anymore. One of the cool things the internet has done is kind of given us what I call infinite inventory. There's always another page to click to. So 
we have to kind of atomize that thought leadership into all of its smallest component parts and try and get it in these people's feeds. That's become kind of a, a big strategy for us trying to figure out our production model and how we make that kind of stuff. At Longitude, we often phrase it as that your great thought leadership relies on robust research, analysis, and critical thinking, and not just opinions. The danger is for the marketplace, and certainly in the whole content marketing, that bits of half opinions, part data, that actually, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the critical thinking and analysis that goes into the thought leadership? We look at this a lot, actually, and it's a bit of a cultural issue for us, to be honest. You have people who are absolutely brilliant in their field. And as a consultant, again, you're paid to be professionally smart. And they're used to being taken at their word or their experience kind of speaking for itself. But when it comes to content and an unknown audience who may not know you very well, who you are, what you've done is actually not as important as what you're able to prove. My background is in journalism and editing, and you know, there's still the principle of if you're going to make a factual statement, you should have three corroborated sources to actually back it up. And the best journalist in the world who's been covering a subject for 30 years, they still have to do that every time they write something. Who they are doesn't matter. What they write actually matters. And we've actually done our own internal research to kind of prove this back to our own organization because we were getting a little pushback. I've seen it in, in other industries, too. That said, you know, people are, are interested in branded content, but you have to prove what you're saying. You have to actually point to specific research that maybe isn't your own. And we have to start getting comfortable with that. But you have to bear it out. And these short POV or opinion papers, I think a lot of blogging goes too far into this world. I just don't think are going to uh, create that sense of trust or believability or even the separation in the marketplace. Everybody's got an opinion. That's how we're kind of approaching it. Right. It points again to the importance of this robust research and being clear about what it is that you want to talk about in a way. What is germane linked to the objectives of your clients? Yes, we always have to kind of start somewhere. I think a lot of research is kind of cast around looking for anything interesting to say. But if you don't have a pretty strong thesis, there's a strong chance you won't actually go anywhere with the research. We spend a lot of energy and we call ourselves a people company. Client centricity is another kind of internal phrase you hear, something we really try and instill. We're not even going to go look at a problem unless we've kind of heard it from our clients first, and then we can try and figure out or unpack something. Of course, we're always trying to kind of see around corners for maybe the things that aren't problems for them yet, but it's still kind of related to what we know about their business. Right. So this process of developing insights, communicating, listening to your clients in the first place is, if I understand correctly, a really important dimension to this process of coming up with relevant, robust research. Actually, I was just writing a deck before we spoke about how we're trying to build in insights products as a service to our own organization from an external communication standpoint. We know that other businesses will come to our marketers and say, I'd like to be in the market with this really cool thing that I think we could be able to sell. But before we go around creating content for that, we actually want to go back and maybe find out if that is a true pain point for a client. And we've got ways to kind of pull that information internally. And then there's some just really good technology out there now that I can basically kind of give us a gut check if that topic is going to resonate, not only from a kind of business standpoint, but from a communications and marketing standpoint is there an audience out there willing to even consume that topic from a content point of view right that's very interesting can you talk a little bit about the technologies there because these tools clearly are very helpful in terms of activation engagement and actually at the heart of this question of is it relevant and are people going to be interested to read about it i think some of them are 
are the old classics of interview or polling-based methodology. There's some really great companies out there now that are actually coming from the publishing world and how these large global newsrooms are filtering in a lot of the user-generated content from war zones or breaking news, and they've got to actually kind of figure out what's real. And that's actually forced them to get their tech right so they can slice and dice that stuff and see what's bubbling up within a certain community, a certain topic or sector, down to even a specific building. We've kind of applied that stuff to business problems and say, we've got a lot of experts at a cybersecurity conference in San Francisco. Let's point what we got at that specific building, follow all 400 people there, and then figure out what they're actually talking about amongst themselves and use that as an opportunity to tailor a keynote speech or a social media campaign or a larger piece of research. And it goes longer term too. It doesn't have to be that rapid. I alluded to some internal research we did too. I think we don't spend enough time kind of looking at our own audiences. We're constantly kind of putting our resources towards business-focused content. Obviously, we've got to make money and sell these services, but I think we do ourselves as a service if we don't apply the same kind of rigor to the people that are showing up to our website and, uh, and following us on social media. We constantly are kind of looking at what we call an audience map to kind of learn a bit about them. And it's actually changed our own comms strategy as well, where, well, we need to probably be on Facebook a little bit more because the B2B audience there is growing rapidly. Or, you know, we often say that as an organization, we're constantly going after the C-suite, the CTO, the CIO, the CMO now. But what we actually figured out through a lot of research is that those people are really busy and they offload a lot of business decisions to their lieutenants at the VP and director level. So I've started to tailor our content for that age group that is now entering that director level of 30s to 40s. So stuff like that is how we're always making sure that data and insights are injected into everything we do and we're not resting on our laurels of conventional wisdom. Capgemini is a very large organization. Do you tailor the content for internal audiences as well? For example, the sales team? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are a company of, I think, over 200,000 people now globally with a really big sales organization. And then an entire function of marketing dedicated to our current accounts, talking about upselling and things like that. So a lot of the research and formats that we would consider for an external audience on .com or whatever, that kind of format or even that kind of content might not be appropriate or the same kind of stuff that we would create to give to a salesperson who's going to go on a sit or teach them a new product or service. We think about internal enablement as much as we do external distribution. And I think that's really crucial as well, because it's going to be the same content source, but it's almost a totally different channel, channel being a really loose word there, but it's, it's also important. Absolutely. And I'd like to come back to that maybe in a moment. You touched on social media. It seems to be a very important element today in distribution in activation and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, clearly, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you mentioned Facebook. Can you just talk a little bit about where that fits in when you're delivering a campaign? Sure. It's obviously really crucial, not only because the audiences are large, but it actually offers us a chance to track the data coming through. It's something we can actually measure. Full stop social media is a paid scheme at this point. I think we still have marketers who expect organic reach from social media or expect picking a fun hashtag and an event is actually going to matter. And I kind of have to be the bearer of bad news quite a bit that it doesn't matter anymore, especially now that even Twitter's gone to an algorithm for reach. These, these are 
are all going to be closed off from us unless we pay as businesses. And that's fine. We can play in that world. And, and we're starting to develop a desk to do that internally for our marketers to show up with a budget and a bunch of content and help them figure out how to push it to social. I did mention Facebook. I'd love to come back to that just briefly in that, again, there's conventional wisdom that Facebook is purely personal and there's no business content being done there. And that might be true for organic, but what we found through our research and what the campaigns are telling us is that there absolutely is an appetite for good B2B narratives through Facebook, which some of our best performing stuff is there. Um, we still, of course, use LinkedIn. LinkedIn has got a nice sponsored post product, and they're getting actually good with a lot of their other products. They're making kind of a play to be a bit of a MarTech stack for business marketers, things like LinkedIn Sales Navigator for sales leads. And then there's a really cool product called Elevate that we actually use in our internal employee advocate program. So we've got a big program called Expert Connect that's got nearly a thousand people who have signed up to basically not only kind of be coached or helped get their social media presences off the ground and running and empower them to get in there and start talking and being active members of that community on social media, but also as a conduit for us to maybe make them aware of certain pieces of content, whether it's just interesting stuff we found ourselves or it's maybe actually Capgemini business-focused content. So Elevate is essentially a mini Facebook, if you will, but tied to somebody's LinkedIn profile. So we're able to pull all of those experts in, group them into specific themes and topics, and then we can kick content to them. And it's really easy for them to share from the mobile app. So we're using it in a slightly different way than I think uh, a few other uh, companies are. Right. At the heart of this is this question of internal advocates, as you say, particularly with such a large and skilled staff with various in-depth expertise. Yeah, well, it's also a way to get around the algorithms, to be honest. If we're going to get our edge rank reach dropped down to below 5% as Capgemini, some of our employees who are actual human beings have a much higher percentage of organic reach to their followers. If we're able to tap into that, it's just another way of making sure Capgemini has a presence on social media. That's very interesting. Now, I wanted to talk about one of the findings in recent Power of Thought Leadership research that we did at Longitude. And this was about the importance of building trust through thought leadership. And I'm just wondering, we've seen a spate, an outbreak of fake news, and there's so much information overload in general. What's been your experience in terms of building trust? And maybe can you talk a little bit about what needs to happen for this promise to be realized? To be honest, the fake news stuff hasn't necessarily touched B2B yet. I think there's an implication there with our media buying strategies because there's a lot larger implications in terms of brand safety and where our inventory runs. Capgemini is actually pretty judicious in how we buy media digitally. We do a lot of it at the content level on cost per click sponsored posts. So it's not display running against something untoward or not safe for a brand or, or even the fake news taking up inventory in the feed. I'm sure we've had discussions with our media partners on that stuff, but hasn't quite touched us yet. But trust, I agree, is always an ongoing issue. And, and, and again, this industry where we have to be taken at our word or prove that we know what we're talking about, if we lose that trust, kind of don't have anything at all. There's always going to be a, a rigor to what we put up and create. And we work very, very closely with the business to kind of edit and make sure anything we say online is actually true, especially our, our research is pretty well done. But I think it still is going to come back to 
the account delivery and sales side of the business. They're the ones who are really kind of the stewards of that trust. External comms is a mouthpiece or a manifestation of what these people are kind of coming up with. So for the folks that are actually face-to-face, nose-to-nose with clients and partners, it's their trust that they're earning and we're just helping them kind of say it in a, in a compelling way. Can we talk a little bit about ROI, Parker? Yeah. Measuring ROI is a challenge. Can you talk about it in the context of thought leadership and its strengths and limitations and how you look at it in your campaigns? Sure. There's two sides to how I think about this. And thought leadership is one of them. It's the opportunity for us to bring people in to actually complete an action that is measurable by technology for us. So whether they are downloading a paper or signing up to hear podcasts, it's an actual entry or a gate into our sales funnel. Now, the data layer underneath that is getting a lot more sophisticated. We've just implemented Salesforce's Pardot product across all of our digital properties. It's taken us a long time to set up because there's so much going on for us across all of our country websites and all of our social media channels and all the thought leadership that we produce. So we're trying to basically track all of the IP addresses that are hitting our website. And that's all anonymous because we don't know who those numbers are attached to. But then when someone actually passes through a gate, we can then retroactively go back and see that email address or that job title or that person's name and see all of the things that they've done in the past with that particular IP address. We're starting to figure out actual user journeys because thought leadership allows us to figure out who these people are. And then because they then are part of a a database, we're able to then deliver tailored content because we've been tracking that user journey all along. Tailored content through a drip campaign, usually through email, but we're looking at retargeting through, through paid media as well. And then delivering things that they might find interesting. So using past behavior to influence future content delivery. Now that's a lot easier than it sounds from just an organizational standpoint. I mean, teaching this to hundreds of people is really difficult and kind of a slow change management process. We're also looking at data management platforms online. So we're able to segment out those IP addresses even further and seeing what kind of content that they've looked at online. That's kind of part of our roadmap too. So it's a big concerted effort that we're still kind of steering towards, but we kind of know the direction we need to get. And ultimately, we'll be able to draw a distinction between the first tweet someone came in on as an anonymized IP address down hopefully through as a sale. Now, the gray area that I'm really fascinated with is that because a user journey on a website is so long and they might come back 10, 20 times if you're pumping out some good stuff, there's no way to draw a distinct line from a contract win to a particular piece of content maybe six months earlier, right? Because that first piece of content might have actually been tagged to a completely different campaign and might have been paid for by another business unit and might have been promoting a completely different piece of thought leadership. So there's this kind of nebulous concept of influence or content influence of how other pieces of content, other pieces of thought leadership, other campaigns end up affecting the sales funnel of other campaigns farther down the road and how there's this rising tide lifts all boats, but that tide is extremely difficult to measure. We're going to have to talk a lot about this as an industry moving forward as these data layers get more sophisticated and people start using things like Salesforce and Marketo and and all of these other funnel measurers. And so I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see how we figure that out. 
It's fascinating the power of technology, the potential to see below the surface and to peel back the layers of data and see what's actually happening. So bearing that in mind, how do you balance these factors when you're considering the effectiveness of a campaign? It's a great question. We as content strategists, and I have a team of content strategists that we've set up specifically to kind of guide marketers through this thought process is figure that out up front before you create anything. So where does this piece of content probably fit in the funnel? Are we really going for awareness here because it's kind of a nebulous topic that we're introducing to the market and we want to pick up some press coverage and all of that stuff. So maybe we won't gate that piece of content. Maybe we'll actually break up a three-minute video into 10, 20-second videos and we'll actually host them on Twitter and, and use them as autoplay, right? So it's not bringing anybody back to .com. It's just delivering messaging. Then there might be something that is a bit farther down the funnel into consideration or actually buying where we want them to step through a gate and we want to turn them into a, a sales lead. Usually the big monolithic thought leadership that still needs to be published as a monolith because the long form is kind of the bedrock for all of that atomization we've talked about. There's a significant investment in that stuff from the business. So they're going to want to see uh, sales leads come out of that more times than not. So we'll usually gate the big stuff. But we're always looking at ways to break it up into smaller pieces, and maybe we'll use those smaller pieces as top of funnel and then try and bring people into the ecosystem. Right. And I guess the key word here is experimentation. And as the technologies change, also provides an opportunity to play with new technologies, explore the potential, and to maybe, as you say, be a little bit more open to different ways to see how you can engage as content and engage with people at different stages in the funnel. Yeah, I think that's something culturally that a lot of companies might be struggling with. And we talk about innovation until we're blue in the face, but it really comes down to us kind of being comfortable with never doing the same thing twice. And definitely marketing and anything with digital and media, it's not a vocation. We're not blacksmiths who are handing down strategies through the years to different generations. We, you know, we've got to try something new almost every time that you kind of run into people who think there's an actual playbook that works and then they're going to do that playbook instead of actually trying to experiment. I mean, every single time. You should never really be just following a recipe. Right. That taps into this question of culture, which is also important as well. And we've talked about the employees as uh, advocates. And I guess being aware of some of these questions that you're saying about content and seeing themselves as part of that process rather than it's somebody else's job. Yes, I think there's... This might sound harsh, but there's kind of a lack of empathy for an audience in a lot of marketing. In editorial, you're trained to think about what someone would want to read and enjoy reading rather than getting them to put their name in a Salesforce form to treat them as a sales lead. You know, they're not sales leads to us yet. They're, they're actual people who want to read and, and enjoy a certain piece of content. And that sounds like a very simple thing, but it's it's incredibly important and incredibly difficult to kind of really get people to internalize that level of empathy. I think it can really make all the difference. There's, I think, how would I describe this? A, a certain lack of conversational tone that I think holds a lot of B2B content back because there's so much money at stake for some of these contracts and because business with capital B is always seen as a very adult thing. There's an overuse or are people kind of falling back into this very stilted formality in terms of how they develop their content and even the voice they use to write this stuff. And I think that there's room for informalness while still seeming smart, especially with 
this new generation that's coming up as the directors who are again making these decisions. So we counsel a lot to bring it back into a much more conversational tone, maybe actually even a little bit of whimsy and fun. Fun is actually one of Capgemini's seven cultural attributes that we try and always kind of embody. And, I, and we it's interesting, again, it kind of seems like an easy thing to talk about, but we have to bring it up again and again of lighten up, have some fun with this and maybe crack a smile and that'll show up in your work. And especially then when it gets into distribution through social, which is inherently conversational. There's no physical space for formality with a lot of the character count rules. We talk about that as a culture a lot as well. Right. You highlighted something that's, I think, very important and this potential dislocation between the content within and communication media, the social media, as you say, which is increasingly informal. And that doesn't have to mean that the insights are any less, but it's about communication, isn't it? And I know that some direct marketing specialists talk about this, that people think when it's talking to an individual consumer that you talk to them in a very different way from a head of CTO or somebody like that, that you're, you're promoting your product. But actually, fundamentally, it's people reading it and being able to tap into that and, and recognizing, I suppose, the more emotional side of decision making itself, that it isn't a BCG matrix or one of these right. uh, things that we learn in business school, but actually, you know, that these are more multifaceted decision making processes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important also to think about, you know, an audience on Twitter is different than an audience on LinkedIn. So we have to then tailor messaging even further into a smaller audience. And that actually goes beyond voice down to even content format. One of the things we have to kind of fight against all the time, I know it's a bandwidth issue with a lot of our people, but we'll create one set of assets and one set of messaging and then push that out into all of the different pipes that it goes to. And what we've talked about is you've got to have a different set of messaging and a different set of assets per channel with varying degrees of complexity because that audience is going to be different on, on each one. Or maybe, you know, we all have LinkedIn and Twitter on our phones, but even our own personal concept of, of our own voice and the kind of content we expect on either channel is going to be different. So we have to always kind of drive that in. That empathy, that informalness, and that voice is even more discrete community by community. Very interesting. Longitude at the end of the year did our forecast trends for 2017, and we seem to be more or less on track with many of those as they're developing. I'm wondering, are there a couple of trends that you think that will have an important impact over the coming six months or year within the thought leadership and content marketing? Again, I think the data and ROI stuff is going to be increasingly more important as the tools get a little bit more sophisticated. So we're going to have to think of ways of delivering that thought leadership outside of that traditional PDF into smaller, more engaging pieces, and then figuring out ways of actually tracking and measuring its effect the same way we can right now on .com. Uh, .com allows us to plug in all of our own kind of listening devices. And as people pass through, we're able to figure stuff out. Most of the content is consumed off of our own platforms and kind of out of our control. So we kind of have to always think through that. I think it's easy to fall into kind of some of the new shiny object formats. Everyone's talking about VR and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's easy to overextend yourself in that direction. I don't think B2B is really going to be moving into really progressive, crazy stuff anytime soon. So I guess that's like an anti-trend. Yes. They won't be trendy. Thank you for that. That's good to know. Well, that's been a fascinating discussion full of rich insights. Thank you so much, Parker, for taking the time today to share your insights and, and experience. And I wish you the very best of success with your continuing work at Capgemini. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>